0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold The Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gundog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T-Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force-free gundog training, The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazons everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force-free gundog training, and I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalisation, motivation. Hold the line. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hold the Line. So a few episodes ago, I began with a behavioural trilogy, as I called it, and that was part one of the trilogy. So today I'm going to continue with part two of the behavioural trilogy. And in this episode, I'm going to focus on Ren, my GSP, and some interesting Aspects of her relating to her physical health and her sort of emotional slash behavioral health, as it were. And I think the intersection between these two is really quite interesting, particularly because some things for her started to happen quite early when I think her sort of future personality was developing, as it were. And so I think it's had a bit of an impact on the dog that she's grown into, which is interesting. We'll unpack this a little bit. And the other thing to talk about is breed related. Um, issues which I've touched on before in the previous episode in terms of focus and attention and pointers (laughs) to summarize it. So um, let's kind of go through this. So I'm going to talk about Ren in a sort of subject by subject way because there are certain... Um, ways to approach her, as it were. And so the first thing I'm going to talk about is her food motivation. I might have talked about this before, her lack of food motivation, as it were. So the thing to say about this is it started really early that I I noticed that she lacked food motivation as soon as we got her, as soon as we brought her home as a little puppy. And there was actually a video of her with the litter when there was some food out in, in, a, in the bowl for all the puppies to eat. And Ren would kind of run up and grab a couple of mouthfuls of it. And then she would run off and do a bit of playing with her siblings and then run back and have another couple of mouthfuls of it. So she wasn't kind of standing there with the food and persistently eating it until it was gone. And I think that if you want to choose a food-motivated puppy, that's probably a quality you're going to be looking for, the puppy's ability to remain there and continue eating until the food is gone. (laughs) And if they then want to eat their sibling's food, then I think you can definitely say you're on the sort of track towards having a food-motivated puppy. So it was there very early. We brought her home and... I think the first thing that we were trying to do, well, my plan really was to use Zeewee Peak to train around the house because what I do with my puppies generally is I try to train with their meals because there's just so much to teach little puppies that if we if we use training treats and then we give them their meals on top of that in a bowl kind of for free, then inevitably they end up eating too much food, they end up sort of getting getting overweight really, and then they lack food motivation because. They've just they're just stuffed all the time. Basically, they've reached the point of satiation, so you can't really train. So, in short, we need a food which I can handle and touch and throw around, and you know, just basically isn't going to create a huge mess or be unhygienic to train with. And also that food needs to be balanced. It needs to have all the vitamins and minerals and nutrients which a growing puppy needs so that they're not kind of filling up on, say, I don't know, cheese or just some treat. And then just they're not getting a balanced diet because they're full of whatever it is I'm using to train them with. So that is kind of my constant quest really, is to find foods which are healthy, which I can handle. And I tend not to use kibble because I don't believe that is the healthiest food for the vast majority of dogs and puppies. So I tend to favour things like um, dehydrated raw, freeze-dried raw, air-dried raw foods. There are some on the market. There's not a vast array of them yet, but Those which are there, those are the ones that I tend to use. So, Zeewee Peak was one of the ones that I was using at this point. So, anyway, there I was with my Zeewee Peak and with little puppy Wren at eight or nine weeks. And I was trying to train her, and she was just lacking any interest in the food whatsoever. So, by that, I mean that even in the kitchen, a very familiar place, that was her room where her crate was and where she kind of, you know, was most of the day. And even in that room, she lacked interest in the food. And I'd be crouching there with, with my treats and just trying to get some kind of focus from her. And she would be kind of wandering around the room and she would sort of check out and she would go and, and do other things instead. And it wasn't that we were getting zero reps of anything or no, you know, no behavior at all. We were getting some reps, but it definitely was not, you know, normal puppy um food, interest in food. And it also didn't really seem to make much difference how hungry she was. Like she would at the start of a meal, you know, that's when we would get our, our few reps in, but then after that, it would deteriorate. And I think the thing to say is that this was really depressing for me. So, I'm a bit of a training geek and I like to do all kinds of training. And You know, when you get a new puppy, before you get your new puppy, you're thinking about all the things that you want to train and you're planning and you're looking forward and you might even make a list or think about how you want to approach things with this particular pup. Of course, you know that when you get the pup, you're going to have to change your plan somewhat because puppies are all different. But you are very excited about getting started on the training journey with them and to bring your new puppy home and find that they just don't want to work with you at all, really, is... Is just a really, it's a, a punch in the gut, really. It's depressing. It's really tough to take. And it's, re- yeah, so it's really difficult. So after I persevered for a little bit with the Ziwi peak, I noticed that Rem was starting to look a bit skinny, actually. She just wasn't getting enough food. And so then I thought, well, enough of the sort of hardcore when you're hungry, you'll eat the food thing, because that approach isn't working and you are losing weight and that's not great for you as a developing puppy. So we sort of switched and I I bought a bag of Origin kibble, which, you know, as I just said, is not my number one favorite thing to be feeding a puppy. But I figured if Rem would eat it and she would train for it, then, you know, that was more important. And at first, there was a little bit of improvement because the novelty factor of the new food. And this is very common when dogs lack food motivation is that they, at first, when you switch the food, <laughs> will show an increased interest. But then it rapidly returns to what it was before. And that's what happened in this instance too. So I did notice that she was much more interested when we went to training class in the treats that we used there. And those treats were, were, you know, not balanced um, dog food kind of treats. They were things like cheese or meat, uh, like, you know, chicken or any sort of roast meat really, and liver or heart or kidney. So basically moist treats. So then I began to think, I was starting to think really creatively here. What is it that she likes about these treats? Maybe it is the moisture level in the treat. And maybe I need to try and find a food which I can handle and isn't really messy, but it's, it's wetter, it's moister. So then I discovered this whole range of kibbles called semi-moist kibbles, which I'd never heard of before. But there are about three or four different brands that I managed to find of semi-moist kibbles. Um, We experimented with those for a little bit. And again, at first there would be this improvement and then the improvement would decline. And I also noticed about four days after I stopped using one of these semi-moist kibbles that it was still impacted around her back teeth. So this this squishy, because what it is is kind of squishy, I don't know, glue-like. It's almost like Play-Doh kind of consistency. And it got kind of all stuck around her her back teeth. And, and I'd stopped feeding this food four days before and it was still stuck there. So that, for me, was another reason to stop using the semi-moist kibble. So at this point, I just decided I was not going to try and train Ren at home anymore with food. I would continue with toys, but I would not really continue with with the food because it's just not working. And it was getting more frustrating And I felt like it was becoming counterproductive in terms of how we both felt about training. So I stopped training her with her foods and she just went on to eating raw mints, as in balanced, um, pre-made raw minces of various different brands. And so that's kind of what I would say about the food motivation. Now, a little thing to say about her class, when she was coming to training class, when she's being handled by my, my husband, Adam, At training class, she would kind of check in and out. So sometimes she would be able to focus and she'd be able to eat her treats and she'd be able to um, respond quite well in a class environment. And other times she would just show zero interest in treats. You could put them on her nose as if you just wanted to give them to her for free and she just wouldn't even appear to be aware that they were there on her nose. And she would be mesmerized by something else in the room that she was looking at, another dog or a person, or not with any noticeable feelings about whatever it was she was just looking at. She would be quite still, but she would just be still and looking at that thing. So I'm going to return to the focus subject in a minute, because I think that this is an issue that I've seen in other GSPs and maybe, you know, other pointing breeds, you might also be able to relate to it as well. So we'll come back to that in a minute. So the next thing I want to talk about is her allergies, because this ties in really well with the food motivation and resolving the allergies hasn't completely resolved the food motivation, but it did definitely improve it considerably. So when she was about six and a half months old, I noticed that her feet started to turn pink. Now she's quite white in terms of her fur, quite most of her body and her feet consist of white fur with um, brown markings. And The white fur started to go pink and this wasn't causing her any discomfort at first. In fact, (laughs) this has been embarrassing, but I thought that it was because we were walking through fields. This was like the end of the summer or the beginning of the autumn. And a lot of the plants had sort of pollen, dried pollen and desiccated uh, flowers and things that have fallen onto the ground. And I just thought maybe we're walking through something that was staining her fur. And she didn't seem to be particularly bothered about it and didn't seem to be itchy. So I just ignored it for a while. And then suddenly it became itchy and suddenly it went from just being not a concern at all to almost instantly becoming unbearably itchy that she just couldn't stop nibbling her feet and just couldn't leave them alone. Like we had to put a cone on her because she was going to do so much damage to her feet if we just let her keep nibbling at them. So we immediately took her to the vet and she was given, you know, a couple of weeks of prednisolone steroid and, we didn't really know what was causing it. She was also given advocate in case it was caused by mites of any kind. So we're just sort of covering that as a base. As soon as we started the prednisolone, it's it stopped. So she, she just was back to complete normal and, um, her feet healed physically. They, they healed. So she'd been nibbling them quite a lot and she her food motivation improved. Um, that could possibly be because the prednisolone was a steroid, so that was making her quite hungry. Because that's one of the effects of steroids is that it, it can make dogs and people hungry. Um, so that, that improved her food motivation. Although we were aware that's probably a temporary improvement, we stopped the prednisolone, and all her allergy symptoms came back again. And so after just two days, so we started it again immediately. For, for while we continued to explore what was causing this. She went back to the vet and she had some skin swabs taken, and there's nothing that was found as a result of those swabs. And so, after we'd kind of ruled out all these other things, it was concluded that she probably had allergies. And so, she was given a cytopoint injection. She was too young for Apoquel, so dogs have to be over a year to have Apoquel. And when, by this point, it was probably like seven and a half months or something. So, she couldn't have Apoquel yet. So, she was given cytopoint, which worked instantly. And she could stop the prednisolone steroids, which was great because it's not great for a young dog to be on steroids. It can affect their growth. In fact, she is quite a small GSP, so I often wonder if that is why. But anyway, um, the, the Cytopoint really worked. And since then, she's just been on Cytopoint as needed and sublingual immunotherapy. It's taken a while to get the immunotherapy right, but I think we now have a mix which re- is really working. And we were actually able to go over two months between Cytopoint, which was unheard of before this. So so I'm hopeful that we'll be able to come off the Cytopoint and that the immunotherapy is just going to work for her. Um, And who knows, maybe she will grow out of this allergy, as it were. I know that doesn't happen very often with dogs, unlike people, but it could happen. So a thing to say about all of this is that her food motivation improved and she goes in and out of being food motivated, but it hasn't completely 100% fixed her food motivation and made her, for example, into a hungry, food motivated Labrador. But what's quite interesting, I think, is how these things developed together. So when you've got a young puppy, they are becoming themselves, as it were. So they don't have any sort of default, normal quote unquote self that they can revert to when you fix something in a way they are like a little plant which is growing and as the plant is growing the conditions that it's growing under is affecting the way that it develops and the way that it matures and the, the, the adult plant that it grows into the shape that it takes the color of its leaves the things that it encounters as it grows which it has to grow around or adjust to and so all of this is going to influence what the plant becomes and i think that's quite a good analogy for a person or a puppy and for what they're going to be growing into as well so For Ren, it's really hard to separate out each of these strands of her behavior and to sort of be like, um, I don't know, she lacked food motivation for this reason and the allergies have contributed in this exact way. It's really just hard to separate all this out because it all becomes really interwoven and really intertwined to the point where it's, it's almost impossible to differentiate what caused what because it all started so early, which, by the way, is quite unusual for allergies to start this early. So the other thing to talk about is focus issues with her. So this is going to be sort of a pointery, pointer-esque <laughs> subject. So the way that I sort of describe this is a sort of hyper-focus on one thing, which results in completely excluding focus on anything else. And obviously you can see this most clearly when a pointer is pointing. They are so focused on the game that they're pointing. The whole body is intensely alert to it. They are indicating where it is. It is the whole world. It is the whole thing for them. And it has a sort of uh, almost like um, magnetic appeal to the dog and results in a stillness. And this, all these qualities, I think when <laughs> has kind of overflowing too much into other parts of herself, as it were, and parts of her life. So when we're training, if there's something that takes her attention, be it a person walking in a distance or, I don't know, just something, a movement, something happening in the distance that takes her attention, it doesn't need to be any particularly exciting thing, just something that takes her focus. She finds it really, really, really hard to... Um, focus back on me or to take that focus back away from that thing that is drawing her attention at that moment to the point where you can actually put the treats on her nose and she will not even be aware that they are there. She will not try and eat them. She will not acknowledge them in any way. And this was happening, as I said, at training class, for example. So if she she would move in and out of these stages where she'd be able to train and then she wouldn't be able to train. If she wouldn't be able to train, if she, if she was mesmerized by another dog, which she just felt like watching across the room, you could put the treats on her nose to try to lure her around to get some focus from her. And she wouldn't even acknowledge that there was a treat on her nose. So you can actually do anything. You're pretty powerless. You just kind of wait for her to be ready to focus back on you. Um, sometimes you could use your own movement as in movement of treats on the floor to get her attention back. So you could roll a treat along the floor and try and elicit some prey drive directed towards the treat. And sometimes that would enable her to withdraw that focus from the other dog or person, whatever, and engage with you again. But it was a struggle. It's a struggle. So there's a sort of hyper focus to the exclusion of other things is how we sort of talk about that. And also, just a difficulty shifting focus from one thing to another. So, here's another example of this. So, we've been doing some split retrieves recently with Ren and with Rosh and working on them just not going to the first one down. So, for example, I've, we've just been talking about split retrieves recently um, in a previous episode here. So, you might want to listen back to that. But we've got the retrieve thrown out, the first retrieve, say, thrown out to, I don't know, say the right. And then we throw the second retrieve out to the other side. Now, Ren finds it really difficult to, to take her attention off that first retrieve, to, to stop looking at the first thing that she saw. Sometimes she doesn't even appear to be aware or to see or to notice the second retrieve that's been thrown because she's just so hyper-focused on that first one. So that's another example of the sort of thing that I'm talking about. It's just really hard for her to move her focus around, change the object that she's focusing on. Um, And this is a massive quality that that she has. And it all ties in as well with this predatory behavior that she had towards and still sometimes does have towards Moy. So Moy is our eight-year-old Labrador and Ren was a total pain in the butt when we brought her home and would, for want of a better word, point Moy and freeze and stare at her and then run and charge at her at some moment of her choosing and pounce on her and moi tolerates this but it's, she's not very happy about it it makes her a little bit miserable so obviously we tried to give them a bit of space we'd use a stairgate, but it was really really pronounced so the first time that we took them out together as so i usually take puppies out separately to all the dogs but every now and again i would take them out together and the first time we kind of had a walk around our fields with them both what happened was Moy just froze in the middle of the field eventually, because every time she moved, Ren would stop pointing and run and jump and pounce on her. And so Moy just decided the safest thing to do is just to stand still in the middle of the field. And we couldn't actually continue walking around the field because Moy wouldn't move. Moy wouldn't move until we went and put the, the leash on Ren so that this just couldn't happen anymore. So, I mean, that's an example of how extreme this behavior is. And I've also posted some video on social media of Ren pointing one of the other dogs, I can't remember if it is was Rosh or, or Moy, but she'll stand there and she'll point around the house one of the other dogs for sometimes like three minutes, four minutes, just standing there before she decides to run and pounce at them. So this is all the same kind of thing again. It's that sort of, it's in play, but it is this hyper focused quality and it makes for a really difficult dog around the house. Luckily, Ren is growing out of this a little bit and adding in Roche has taken a lot of the focus off Moy. So I think Moy is a lot more comfortable now because Ren and Mosh have got each other a bit. Um, whereas it was a very difficult when we, when we just had Moy and Ren. Um, so the other thing to talk about is. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me and apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gun Dog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. Uh, this late, The last thing to develop in terms of Ren was the sort of uh, sleep startle reactivity, I'm going to call it, although it, it's not only happening on those at those times. So this was a relatively late thing to develop. Probably it was about eight months ago-ish. And what happened was the first couple of times I noticed it was um, Moy and our Labrador and Ren were sleeping, lying next to each other both fast asleep and Moy moved a little bit. She stretched a leg and it touched Ren. I think it touched Ren in her belly. Not very hard, but just in a quite vulnerable place. And Ren leapt up snarling and stood over Moy snarling at her as if she had, was protecting herself, really. And this happened again a little bit later. So it's been interesting watching how they've kind of dealt with this because at first I I was concerned this was going to be a huge difficulty for the dogs to get along in the house. And at first it was, but they've all worked things out. So they will all give Ren her space now. None of them want to sleep in physical contact with Ren. They will just move away if they can. And they they also make sure that, you know, if Ren comes up to them that they and and has this sort of quality about her that they they're kind of able to give out sort of appeasement, um Signals to her and to move away. Because it didn't only happen during sleep. It started only during sleep, but then it became this sort of impingement. So if another dog impinged on Ren's space and was too much in her face. And it can also happen in the middle of play. That's another thing to say as well. So play can appear to be going really well. Everything's really equal, looks really balanced. And then Ren just takes offense at something. And it's really hard because play is so fast to see exactly what it is. But there's something that happens in the interaction where the other dog perhaps inadvertently oversteps the mark and puts puts their face or their self too close in Ren's eyes to Ren. And Ren will sort of growl and move away now. So the other dogs have gotten really good at knowing when this is about to happen and at stopping play before it gets to that point. And it's happening less and less. But Ren does have this tendency. So I think the way that I see this is a sort of body sensitivity. So it's almost like Ren's physical bodily sense of self is easily threatened. And I can relate this to her allergies again and this early development of itching and just being uncomfortable physically and you know, I think I think these things are very related and connected to me. So Ren is a really complicated little dog. She's not very straightforward at all. She is very happy at the moment. She's doing very well. But I think all of these things are really quite interesting. And I think we potentially need to kind of think about these connections more. So these connections between a dog's physical health and the sort of behavioral, emotional health. And I know that people frequently talk about this, but it's really difficult to Give it, maybe have enough examples of it for it to begin to make sense. But I think we need to really kind of explore a little bit. So I I kind of sometimes feel like people who are focusing on training or on behavior don't feel that they have enough confidence to be taking into account the physical side of things because they're not vets, understandably. And I also feel equally that vets don't take into account enough the behavioral side of things and the impact that that whatever the dog's condition might have behaviorally. Um, so... I think that these things are potentially very interesting, rich subjects for I don't know, future thought and and exploration. I also think it's important to think about the breed differences here as well. So as I said, I've known many GSPs with these sort of hyper-focus issues. There's sort of difficulty focusing, or too well, probably the difficulty focusing is because they're too focused on something else. So so it's a kind of I don't know if you want to define it as a lack of focus or as excessive focus. And I relate that very much to the whole pointing side of things, which they've been bred to have. And my question would be, is it possible to have too much pointing instinct? Interestingly, in the field, Ren's major difficulty is that she false points. So she will point where a bird has been in the past, but is no longer there. And she will point sometimes quite firmly on these locations. And this this isn't due to a lack of experience because she's had enough experience now. And so I will walk up and then it turns out there's nothing there. And then I tell her to get on. She hunts some more. She finds something else, allegedly. I walk over and there's nothing there. And, you know, this can go on. And it puts me, the handle in a difficult position because I don't want to add credibility to what she's finding if there actually isn't anything there by reacting as if there is something there and walking up to her and telling and saying steady, steady and you know asking her to flush things when there's nothing there. I don't want to honor these things when there actually isn't anything there for her to find. But on the other hand, if she does find something, I don't want to ignore it and walk on. And that is equally not a good idea. So it puts me in a really difficult position, but it's interesting that she has this difficulty in the field of almost excessive pointeriness. And that has had difficulty in so many other ways. Excessive pointeriness is leading to this hyper focus on things at other times and difficulty to focus on the other stuff going on. And also this predatory need to just point other dogs around the house for three or four minutes at a time and so on. So yes, that is my question is, is it possible to have too much pointing instinct? Hold the line. So I've had a question from Morag, which actually touches on all of this as a subject. So her question is, morning, Joe, long-term listener and course taker, as you know, Your stuff is awesome and makes training mostly on my own, much less lonely. Thank you for everything you're doing to promote force-free gundog training and the mechanics of splitting rather than lumping. Very welcome, Warag. The most recent podcast on what the dog brings was fascinating to me. It can sometimes feel like I am constantly trying to find the sweet spot for my adopted, highly prey-driven, wide-ranging and independent German wirehead pointer. You mentioned that you felt Ren's false pointing was not hugely surprising when you put it into the context of her behaviour around your other dogs. Are there any other ways that you might use to evaluate a dog's performance in terms of more hardwired versus learned behaviors? Not suggesting they are distinct, of course, but that sense that with some behaviors we might need to accept it is going to be very challenging when possible to use good training to change them. Sometimes it's hard not to just feel like a crap trainer. So, Marg, you're not a crap trainer. Um <laughs> I'm sure. I think you know, we can only work with what we have. And, you know, sometimes it's difficult to predict or to know in advance how much things are going to be influenceable, if that's a word, through our training and how much they are just there because they're kind of hardwired and they're part of the dog's genetic makeup, as it were. We can always do our best to try and affect the change we want to see through training and we can persevere and we can try different ideas. But if things just don't seem to be clicking for the dog, then I think we have to accept that we've kind of come up against something which is a limitation in terms of genetics or breeding. So I'm trying to think of another example. So yeah, there is another example. So again, talking about HBR breeds, I find that some HBRs can handle in terms of being taught to take directions left and right and back much more easily than others. And some of the dogs that I've trained, I'm just thinking about my Slovakian her pointer, Gray, I really bust a gut trying to teach Gray to handle, to, to take casts left and right and back. But she just didn't seem to have any, she just seems to be lacking a part of her brain, which would enable her to do that in a reliable way when we were in a sort of new novel environment. So I was able to teach her To handle left and right and back in particular places where we would teach her where the piles were. We would teach her where the left pile was, where the right pile was, the back pile was, and we would run the T drill. And she was able to do it in that context. But anytime we tried to take it away from that context into a new environment, she just couldn't generalize and she just couldn't take the cast accurately or even semi accurately. She just appeared to have completely forgotten. And I just kept thinking, well, it must just be because I haven't generalized it to enough different locations. If I teach her, the you know left and right and back to piles at enough different locations, eventually she'll be able to generalize. So I just kept going with this and kept going with this. And we never got there. That's all I can say. And before Grey, I had um, Slate, a Vimurana who could handle left and right and back like a retriever, like a Labrador. And so I think that was particularly difficult for me to realize the limitations of Gray. And I think that if I were faced with Gray now, I probably would have given up on teaching her to handle much, much, much earlier. And I would have decided, right, Gray is not going to be a working test kind of dog. She's not going to be a dog that I can handle. I should just teach her to hunt. I should just teach her to hunt to be steady. I should work on the pointing. I should work on everything else that is part of what a HBR does. And we we should achieve what we can achieve with that. So yeah, that's another example. I feel like there are some dogs some hbrs particularly hbr breeds that take to the handling side of things and there are some that just seem to have brain blocks for want of a better word around the whole subject and the interesting thing for me about gray is that she was really not very bodily aware like she didn't seem to be aware of where her legs were of where her body was of how long her body was of how to move her body in a way that showed that she was physically aware of it if that makes sense so i don't know if there's some connection In terms of neurological connection between the dog's ability to sort of map their own body and map their own body in space and relate the cast, which you're giving them to their own body, moving through space to another point. To me, these things are connected as well, because, again, this is just an example, a sample size of a really small number of dogs. But Slate, my Weimaraner, who has been probably of the HBRs, I've I've known one of the best handling HBRs, which is very successful at working tests. Um, she had excellent bodily awareness. She was very aware of her own body in space. She could do all kinds of fine movements, and um, was just really physically aware. So I reckon there's a correlation, a relationship there as well. But whether, whether are there things we can do with young puppies? Is it important to be teaching them to be physically aware of their bodies? Is it that dogs which grow large and are you know rapidly, they 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 tend to find it harder to feel that awareness of their body because it seems very clumsy to them and their body changes in terms of size very quickly during puppyhood and adolescence. And so it's difficult for them to have that physical awareness. I don't know. These are just things that I play with, just ideas and thoughts that I have. So um, yeah. So the answer to to your question, to get back around to it, is that yes, there are other things, but I don't think that we should therefore give up immediately and just not try to help in terms of training. We should always try to influence things in the way that we want to via training, but we have to also acknowledge there might be limitations. And if we do come across these limitations and we do think that they have a genetic basis, my experience is that going and going and going and going and trying to fix that thing just doesn't really... Um, you don't really reap the rewards because you're coming up against something which is sort of genetically hardwired in there. It's better to kind of explore what the dog can do and to work with the dog's strengths rather than to try to work against those limitations, if that makes any sense. I hope I've answered the question. Hold the line. All right, that's all for this week, everyone. I have waffled on long enough and probably repeated myself a few too many times. um, But we're going to leave it here for this week and i'll talk to you all again soon